The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. The show today presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag, use my promo code, KevinDC, and they'll double your first deposit dollar for dollar all the way up to 1000 bucks. Right now at MyBookie, the 49ers are minus three. They're down to three over the Cowboys. That line opened at four, four and a half in some spots. I was way off on that. Um, I guessed after the Cowboys won Monday night that the 49ers would be like a five and a half or six point favorite. They opened up as I think a short dog the Cowboys did and now it's down to three in a lot of spots including my bookie and much of the public action early to midweek has been on San Francisco. I think the Cowboys are going to be a smell test selection for me on um, on Friday. I actually think Buffalo and Philadelphia are going to be picks for me as well. But lots of information to gather between now and Friday, so we'll see how that works out. MyBookie.ag, use my promo code KevinDC for a doubling of your first deposit. Jay Gruden's going to be on the show today with me. Uh, we'll talk NFL playoffs. We'll talk a lot of Washington commanders uh, as well. Before we get to Jay, though, a few things. First of all, uh, Washington's offensive coordinator search continues. Right now, Washington uh, has interviewed Pat Shermer. That happened yesterday. The team actually announced that. I mean, news broke on that, but the team is actually putting out on their Twitter account who they're interviewing for the offensive coordinator position. Pat Shermer yesterday, Ken Zampezi, who's already part of the staff as the quarterback's coach, is interviewing for the job today. Uh, Charles London, who's a quarterback's coach in Atlanta, um, there's been a request to interview Charles London. Eric Studsville, who is in Miami currently uh, as a uh, as a running backs coach, uh, Washington's requested an interview with him. Now, Daryl Bevel today turned down a request by the commanders uh, to interview for their uh, opening. Uh, he also turned down an interview from the Jets to interview for their uh, opening for offensive coordinator. So right now, uh, what we know is Pat Shermer, Ken Zampezi, soon to be Charles London, Eric Studsville, or Studsville, however uh, that's pronounced, actually. Um, Shermer, uh, none of this really excites me, but none of it really disappoints me either. The truth of the matter is, 
I don't know that Washington, given their ownership situation, which leads to, by extension, a coaching situation for next year, Ron Rivera looking like a lame duck coach, potentially, um, I don't know what they're going to be able to attract. Pat Shermer didn't coach this year. He's His last two seasons as offensive coordinator were in Denver under Vic Fangio in the 20 and the 21 season. Before that, he was the head coach of the Giants in 18 and 19. Um, Pat Shermer is a lifer. Pat Shermer's uh, son was on the practice squad as a quarterback here last year, I think it was. Pat Shermer uh, has ties to Ron Rivera. They worked together in Philadelphia in the early uh, 2000s uh, when he was there um, as a quarterback's coach uh, for Donovan McNabb. Um, and Ron Rivera was on the defensive staff uh, for Andy Reid. Um, there's also the tie that Pat Shermer was hired in New York to coach the Giants by Dave Gettleman, the GM who came from Carolina. So these two know each other, and you're always looking for that with this group, with the exception of, of Del Rio. You know, most of the hires have been uh, people that uh, have had ties to Rivera in the past, and Shermer would appear to be one of those. Now, if you're wondering, like, what kind of fit is Shermer? Well, Shermer in his last two years coaching as an OC under, uh, under Vic Fangio in Denver offensively in the traditional, you know, average yards per game. They finished 23rd in 2020, 19th in 2021. Uh, If you're thinking, hey, what about rushing yards in Denver? And remember, the quarterbacks in Denver those two years were Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Locke. Okay, he didn't have much to work with. He was the head coach and offensive play caller and coordinator for all intents and purposes when he took over the Giants from McAdoo um, in 18 and 19 with Daniel Jones um, being drafted in 2019. Uh, And it didn't work out for him there either. But in the last two years in Denver, without a quarterback, they ended up being the 13th ranked rush offense in the NFL in both 2020 and 2021 uh, on teams that actually were pretty good with the exception of at quarterback, which is why they didn't end up with good records necessarily. In fact, I think in both of those seasons, I picked before the season started Denver to be a surprise team in the AFC, partly, actually mostly due to the fact that I was always a huge, and still am, a huge Vic Fangio fan and knew with that defensive talent that they would be nasty on defense. And if they could just get anything offensively out of whichever quarterback uh, ended up um, being a part of that group, uh, it might work out. Anyway, um, Shermer, does it excite me? I don't know. I, I don't know what they can attract right now. I, I, you know what Ron should do, though, in my opinion, since he had somebody who was new at being an offensive coordinator – is find somebody who's got some real experience. Ron is more of a CEO coach. He is much more of a delegator. He has allowed his coordinators to be much more autonomous than perhaps he did at Carolina. He all but admitted that to me last year when I was doing his weekly um, in-season appearance on radio, uh, that he's a different coach here, uh, you know, because he's also got organizational responsibilities in this coach-centric model. Um, But, um, you know, Scott Turner was new 
Uh, he had not been an offensive coordinator before. Uh, he became an offensive coordinator for the very end of Ron Rivera's final season in Carolina, taking over for his father when Ron Rivera was gone. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I don't have super strong feelings other than I think what would be best for Ron is to hire somebody with coordinator experience. That would be something that I think makes sense. You've got to have somebody right now, it would appear, that also is very quarterback-friendly, with I think, which I think Pat Shermer is. Pat Shermer, remember, uh, was in Minnesota as the offensive coordinator um, in 2017 uh, when um, Mike Zimmer's Vikings made it to the NFC Championship game with Case Keenum at quarterback. By the way, Case Keenum is a free agent. You know, I talked yesterday about the possibility of like, okay, if Sam Howell's the guy, and I don't really believe that the report that we talked about from uh, Jonathan Jones from CBS uh, about Washington telling offensive coordinator prospects that Sam Howell's going to be the QB1 next year. I think there's probably some context to that. Like, what do you think about Sam Howell? Like, I, if you're interviewing offensive coordinators, you should be asking questions and listening more than talking and finding out what they think. Um, versus telling them what they're going to be doing. I, at least that that would be a significant part of the interview if I were involved in it. Um, but what do I know? I've never interviewed anybody for offensive coordinator. But I would think that the best course of action is to hear their ideas and to listen to their thoughts about not only Sam Howell, but Taylor Heineke and even Carson Wentz. Let's not forget. As of right now, Carson Wentz is under contract. I don't think he's going to be under contract for that much longer. But um, Heineke is not under contract. But think about, you know, yesterday I said, you know, like an Andy Dalton or a Jacoby Brissett to go with Sam Howell. Maybe Case Keenum, if Pat Shermer gets the job, would be the guy, Case Keenum making a return here, potentially, a guy that, you know, was willing to kind of mentor Dwayne Haskins that particular year. And let's not forget Colt McCoy was on that team as well in 2019. Jay Gruden coached that team. I'll ask Jay about uh, Case Keenum uh, when he comes on. But um, anyway, uh, I think that's the best course a veteran backup, four million bucks a year, three million bucks a year. Dalton made three million bucks this year. Now, the intention was for him to back up Jameis Winston. You know, in looking at Andy Dalton's year this year, I actually wouldn't be surprised if Dennis Allen, the New Orleans coach, decided to keep Andy Dalton. That team played pretty well down the stretch. If they had not blown a 16 to 3 Monday night lead at Tampa, Remember that comeback where Mark Ingram ran out of bounds short of the first down, which would have kept the clock running, and 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 uh, New Orleans would have won. New Orleans was really good on defense, especially second half of the year. Dalton was you know solid, had a solid year. Jameis Winston was healthy, could have come back. They stuck with Dalton. It wouldn't surprise me if Dalton gets re-signed by the Saints since since Dennis Allen has been retained. He's not going anywhere where after one year. Um, I don't know. The Saints could go after somebody uh, as well, you know, a Derek Carr or somebody like that, Lamar Jackson. I don't know, Tom Brady. Um, but wouldn't surprise me if Dalton commands maybe a little bit more attention after last year. But Brissett made $4.5 million last year. 
Uh, Dalton made three million. That's what you're looking for. Hal at like a million a year, nine hundred thousand or whatever it is, is a fifth round rookie, and then three to four million on a Brissett or a Dalton or a Case Keenum to be a veteran backup. So if Hal's not the right guy, the season doesn't go to hell in a hand bucket. Now you could say, well, Taylor Heineke can do that. I I, I hear you. You know, you're not going to do any better than five hundred or a game above or a game below. My opinion. Um, I would go in a different direction. I would go with a veteran backup. Andy Dalton, had Andy Dalton been the quarterback here for 17 games this year, in my opinion, the team would be in the postseason. They would have made the, the playoffs. They would have won at least another game or two. I think Andy Dalton was much better than anything they had on their roster this year. I mean, I don't know if he's much better than Sam Howell at this point, but I feel confident saying that Andy Dalton's better than Carson Wentz and Taylor Heineke. But maybe that, you know, the Shermer thing, Case Keenum, who knows. Uh, but that's kind of the direction given the budget thing that we talked about yesterday, the state of ownership, etc. By the way, speaking of ownership, um, yesterday after the podcast, A.J. Perez from Front Office Sports reported that um, the bidders, and there have been at least a half dozen that put in that first round of bidding, the bidders have been told that Snyder is selling a majority stake in the team. Uh, you know, may not be the whole enchilada, but a majority controlling stake in the team. The Post also yesterday had that Snyder's price tag is $7 billion and that the initial round of bids, as front office sports reported, came in well short of that. Uh, but anyway, um, it'd be interesting just if Snyder ends up selling a controlling majority stake but keeps 20%, 30% for the family. Um, you know, And he's like, look, I'm going to continue to own some of this team. Uh, there might be tax benefits to doing, doing it that way. There certainly could be much more value to his non-controlling stake five years from now than there is now, more likely than not. So we'll see what happens. Um, you know, all we care about, I mean, I don't think we want the Snyders involved at all as minority shareholders. We don't want them involved in any way, shape, or form. But obviously, you know, if somebody's going to pay $6.3 billion in valuation, and let's say they, you know, call it $7 billion when all is said and done. I don't think it's going to get to that. Um, but if they acquired, let's just say, 70% of that at $7 billion, and they're paying $4.9 billion for the 70% stake, they're, you know, it's a controlling stake. They're not going to have the Snyders involved. And they're going to understand, I would hope, um, the optics of having the Snyders anywhere near the the team. They would have to be really super silent 20 to 30% shareholders over living over in Europe or wherever they're moving to. UK, people have uh, suggested. A couple of more things real quickly before we get to Jay Gruden. Number one is something that I missed before the podcast yesterday, and that is that Ben Standig reported that Scott Turner was against the Wentz trade. He was not on board for the Wentz trade uh, last you know, winter uh, when Washington uh, pulled the trigger on Wentz. Um, I don't know who was in favor of what. Uh, I believe Ben, by the way. Um, it doesn't surprise me that Scott Turner wasn't on board 
uh, for Wentz. I have found, and I know that this is going to bother some of you, I've actually found Scott Turner to be pretty bright. Um, and uh, while, you know, again, I'm fine, fine with them moving on from Turner and looking for a new and better and more experienced offensive coordinator, um, it wouldn't surprise me, it doesn't surprise me, uh, that Turner would have been one of the cooler heads in the room to say, wait a minute here, what are we doing? Two teams running them out at great expense, you know, at the very least, can we just tread lightly on this thing? We probably don't have to give up much for them. Um, but the rest of the crew uh, super ginned up and ready to pull the trigger uh, in a deal in which they were completely fleeced in because they were too excited about the deal in the moment and too desperate in the moment. That's my take on it. Um, I mean, the final price for Carson Wentz, obviously, even those of you who didn't think so at the time, exorbitant for a guy of his caliber and for ultimately, you know, what you got out of him. Uh, And, you know, we don't know what you would have got out of him had he not been healthy, but the guess here is it wouldn't have been very good. Um, Again, the only thing that they did right in that uh, entire deal is not restructure his deal for a lower cap number in 2022 once he got here. Uh, I don't think Scott Turner was thrilled with Wentz. I don't think he was thrilled some point late in the season with Heineke either. That is my, um, let's just say, educated hunch. Uh, I think that they were really frustrated with the quarterback play overall and the lack of the ability to score um, and to move the football consistently through the air. Again, the irony of it all is that the best game Taylor Heineke played was the San Francisco game until the turnovers. Um, the Giants games are the, the, the games that they will look back on and will look back on, I think. Actually, the Cleveland game, of course. But the Cleveland game, again, and I will remember this, some of you won't, um, it wasn't a game in which your defense gave you much of a chance to win the game, even if you had played better on offense. Uh, I, I will not ever have my mind changed that Taylor Heineke starting that game would have meant that they would have won that game. I know Cooley feels like it would have been a more competitive game. Tommy, of course, is convinced that they would have won the game, and it's a fireable offense that they started Carson Wentz. I think they had gotten to the point, and I think it's convenient sort of revisionist history on how bad um, Heineke had been in those two giant games, even though he had played well in the 49er game. Um, but el- but he also was responsible for two killer turnovers in the 49er game. The guy had turned the ball over five times in your three biggest games of the year up until that point. You know, four turnovers, five fumbles, four turnovers. And in, though five turnovers, actually, I think it was total. You know, in the Giants, let's face it. I mean, you can talk about the Giants being, you know, a good football team now. You know, heading into that game against Washington – you know, the Giants had just, you know, the Giants had, had lost two in a row going into the first game against Washington and were really falling apart at the seams. They had lost to uh, the Cowboys on Thanksgiving Day and had been blown out by the Lions. Um, they also had barely survived the Texans in a win. Um, and then after tying Washington, they got absolutely throttled by the Eagles 48-22. to 
So you can, you know, you can talk about, well, look, the Giants got, you know, into the divisional playoff round. So they lost to a really good team and they tied a really good team. The Giants weren't a really good team when Washington played them, the first time in particular. I'd say the second time, too. Washington wins that Sunday nighter, they would have played Minnesota. They might still be playing right now, even though they weren't a good team either. And the Giants would look back on it and say, how do we lose to that team? Um, But the Giants did have a better quarterback in both games. That's 100% true. All right, uh, last two things I want to get to here real quickly. The Athletics reporting that Rui Hachimura is on the market, that the Wizards are trying to trade Rui Hachimura. Um, I think that from my perspective, Kyle Kuzma is the key here. I like Hachimura. Um, he's, I like him more than I thought I would like him after they drafted him because I was a much bigger Brandon Clark fan out of Gonzaga, off that Gonzaga team, than I was a Hachimura fan. But Hachimura's got a lot of talent. He really does. Um, but the, the key here is Kuzma because Kuzma's got a player option next year for $13 million. He's going to decline that. And if the Wizards feel like they can't re-sign Kyle Kuzma, they can't trade Hachimura. So if they do trade Hachimura, it must mean – that they feel like they've got a really good chance of retaining Kyle Kuzma after the year is over. I don't know what you get for Hachimura. Um, I, I, I'm, I, I would assume, I would assume the Wizards are looking for, you know, uh, a player of his caliber or a pick back. You know, preferably a first round pick. He was what the ninth overall pick in the first round. His availability's been a problem. So apparently there's interest, and what the Wizards can actually get for Rui Hachimura will depend on how much interest there, there is. You need several teams highly interested. But I think if they deal him, it, is a, it, it, should, be, it should be a sign that the Wizards believe that they can retain Kyle Kuzma, which I would much prefer over Hachimura in terms of moving forward. But you can't lose both of them. And you certainly can't lose Kuzma before the trade deadline if you're not going to be able to re-sign him because then you should trade him because you're going nowhere this year. So make sure if you're going to lose Kuzma, you get some value because there's interest in Kyle Kuzma as well. We've known that for a while. Last thing before we get to Jay Gruden. So a friend of mine texted me during the radio show this morning and he said, you've got to watch the John Wall interview, the John Wall interview that he did with Theo Pinson, who was a former North Carolina player, I think he plays for the Mavericks, and some other guy named A.J. Richardson um, for a podcast called Title League. And I said, why? He And then I started reading. He's made a lot of headlines with a lot of things that he has said in that podcast. The podcast interview was an hour and 50 minutes with John Wall, an hour and 50 minutes. And he said a lot of things. He, he said that he got he, – North Carolina would have been the school he would have gone to. Um, that's where he grew up, you know, in, in that area. And the, the heels were everything to any kid in North Carolina. And he showed up for his recruiting trip, and Tyler Hansbro to, uh, basically said to him, I don't talk to recruits. And Wall said, I'm not coming to Carolina then. Uh, Tyler Hansbro, by the way, on social media, completely denied uh, that happening and said it's a lie, that John Wall's lying about it. 
um, he talked about uh, getting traded from the Wizards, that Russell Westbrook was the guy that basically reached out to him to say, DC wants me, they want to trade for me and trade you. And John Wall was not happy with the way the, the whole thing happened. There's a lot that's great in this interview. But let me just tell you the overriding um, thought and takeaway for me before I play a specific part of the interview. John Wall was a great interview in this particular podcast. I mean, engaging, storytelling, really good memory about a lot of things and other things he missed on a player or missed on a game because I remember some of these games as well. But he was never that way um, when dealing with local media when he was a player here. I don't want to say he was a bad interview. I had John Wall probably on my show, I don't know, three, four, five times you know, during his time here. Maybe more than that. I forget. And uh, the truth of the matter is I never really thought that he was a great interview. And that could have been also because I wasn't doing a good job asking him questions and getting him engaged like these two gentlemen did because they grew up in the same area with John. They were familiar with the entire high school basketball scene in Raleigh and, you know, the AAU scene, and they're great stories. And John's memory of of, of AAU games and high school games and relationships, he's just, he was a phenomenal storyteller in this interview. I was blown away with, by the way, also just how engaging and charismatic Wall was. It's like a different dude than the dude I remember. Now, Chris Miller, I think, of the local media people, probably got to know John and, the, and all of the Wizards better than anybody. Um, and Chris, I, I know, has always said he loved John, thought he was just a super nice kid. And look, the trade to the Rockets, the Wizards were pissed. He was in that photo for his birthday in New York with, with you know, flashing gang signs or whatever it was. Really pissed Ted Leonsis off in the, in the organization. And ultimately, that's why they traded him. They had, they had, had it with him. Um, here's the part I'm going to play. My recommendation. If you're a Wizards fan and you care and you remember his time here, because I, I know a lot of you aren't, I am. Recommendation, watch this. It's on YouTube. Just, you know, Google John Wall, you know, interview, podcast interview. I, he's just, it's great. Um, but the part that I'm going to play for you is the part he comes off talking about the 2016-2017 team um, that the Wizards had that lost to the Celtics in seven games. Remember, that was the closest they actually got to the Eastern Conference Finals, although the year before that, John broke his hand um, in you know early in that series, and they lost him against Atlanta, and I thought I actually think that team should have been and would have beaten the Hawks and gotten to the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, the next closest was the Celtics the following year. John had a phenomenal series in the conference semifinal. Uh, I'm sorry, in the in the in the first round against the Hawks, he had one of the great games in in Wizards slash Bullets playoff history. The closeout game that he had, where he went for 43 um, in that closeout game in Atlanta in Game Six. Um, but the part though I'm going to play for you is after he discusses that seven game series where he basically blames Scott Brooks 
uh, in, in calls the series, uh, you know, he said bad coaching in that series. Look, I, li- I liked Scott Brooks as a person. He was a wonderful guest all the time. I never thought he was much of an X's and O's coach. I always felt like Randy Whitman was a million times better as, a, as an X's and O's uh, coach than Scott Brooks. And Wall basically blamed the seven-game series loss um, on Scott Brooks and his substitution pattern in particular. But anyway, off of that, one of the headlines he made was talking about that if they had gotten through that series against Boston, they would have faced LeBron James and the Cavs in the Eastern Conference Finals. And you'll hear him cl- claim that the Cavs didn't want any part of the 2017 Wizards. What was, your, what was the best team that had a chance? In D.C.? Yeah. At 16-17? We was going to beat the shot of Bron. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, if you do anybody, anybody from the Cavs, that was one team they did not want to see on the East. Which y'all? They did not want to see us. Me and Kyrie, we matching up. Mm-hmm. I'm taking Brad over JR. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got Bron over Trevor Reese. I'm taking, you know who. Mm-hmm. Kevin Love and Kevin Love and Marquis Morris. I'm taking Kevin Love, but Marquis Morris can shoot threes yeah, and post yeah. up. Yeah. I'm taking Gortat over Tristan Thompson. Yeah. Oh, for sure. They're the same player. And our yeah. bench was deeper than theirs. Y'all we had Bogey, um, Kelly Oubre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Kelly was playing well that year, he too. Was. He was. That's when he was coming to himself. Yeah, so I'm like, then you look at every game we played that year, it was always a one, two-point game. Mm-hmm. They broke our 18-game home home game winning streak when what Brown he, hit that bank fucking shot. That, in the <laughs> corner? Bitch, tell him I work on this shit every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I told him that shit was luck. He said, ain't no luck. I work on that shit every day. Yeah. Man, get the f- yeah. I'm like, you baked it, Brian. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, crazy. that was like, I feel like that year, and then the year I broke my hand against the Hawks, mm-hmm. we was going to play the Cavs again. They won, won, they won. That's the year they ended up winning the championship. Not saying we would have beat them that year, or we would have, yeah. we definitely wouldn't have beat the Warriors. They would have won. We wouldn't yeah. have beat the Warriors. Because we just, like, me and Brad was good, but we ain't Bron. Like, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. There's nothing you could do with that motherfucker. You just right. hope. You know what I mean? So I was just pissed we didn't get to play them in the conference finals. He was talking there, by the way, at the end about the 18-game winning streak they had during that season. It was a, an incredible regular season game that went to overtime, and LeBron hit like a fadeaway bank shot to force OT at the end of regulation, and they went on to win that game. But with respect to the claim that the Cavs you know, were, you, didn't want any part of the Wizards, first of all, let me correct uh, wall because during this interview, his memory uh, in the, in vivid detail about a lot of different things was very impressive to me. But he did get something wrong in discussing what the matchup with the Cavaliers that year would have been. Uh, Trevor Ariza was not on that team. Otto Porter was the small forward. So yeah, you'd still take LeBron over Otto Porter as he was going through his matchups. But Otto Porter was the starting small forward for that team. Trevor Ariza was long gone. Uh, By the way, always felt like that was a mistake to get rid of Trevor Ariza um, and should have had, you know, that leadership um, and high IQ on on that team from the time he was a big part of their first playoff uh, series against Chicago back in 2014, which, by the way, Wall talked about a lot. I don't know if the Cavs really feared the Wizards in 2017. I have no idea. They, they clocked that year uh, the Celtics. The Celtics, remember the Game 7, that the Wizards lost to the Celtics. That's the, you know, that's the famous uh, uh, game. Um, the, the First of all, Isaiah Thomas uh, had 53 in Game 2, but in Game 7 it was all about Kelly Olynyk, who, who came off the be- bench to score like 28 or something like that. 
to win to win the game. Um, and by the way, uh, he did talk about that series. And it's true. They lost several games that were completely winnable. They lost that series four games to three. Game one, game two, and game seven were all winnable games uh, in Boston uh, during that, uh, during that. you know, the last time the Wizards actually played in a playoff series that mattered. I mean, we're coming up on, it'll be six years this spring. Pathetic. Uh, but no, I, I, I doubt the Cavs would have uh, lost to uh, the Wizards in the Eastern Conference Finals that year. And it was good that he had a lot of self-awareness on the Warriors. And I thought there was a lot of self-awareness. And he said, look, look Bra- you know, me and Brad, not LeBron, not Steph and Clay." Um, anyway, really, I, I just sat here. I-, I-, I know probably some of you are like, what a waste of time. No, it wasn't. Uh, I found him to be incredibly interesting. I don't know how accurate he was on a lot of these things um, that he talked about, uh, but he did make some headlines. He, by the way, if you didn't know this, he's playing in L.A. with the Clippers right now on a team that once they get it together and they get everybody healthy is going to have a chance in the West, in my opinion. I mean, with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and Reggie Jackson and John Wall as well, um, I think they'll have a chance. Wall, by the way, averaging 22 minutes uh, you know, a night and averaging 11 and five, 11 points, five assists uh, off the bench. He's had some really good games, though, uh, for um, for the Clippers. They'll be an interesting team come playoff t- time. All right, uh, let's get to Jay Gruden next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, on the podcast with me right now, uh, once again, is former Redskins coach Jay Gruden, longtime offensive coordinator before he got his first head coaching job, coached Andy Dalton uh, in Cincinnati under Marvin Lewis for all of those years. And we've got an OC conversation to have about the team here locally. Um, and I guess I guess where I wanted to start with you today is I wanted to just talk about the weekend that just ended, and then we'll get into Washington and all of their conversations. But it was a hell of a playoff weekend, you know, with really good games, the comeback by Jacksonville on Saturday night, the performance by, you know, San Francisco in the second half, the Bills-Dolphins game, the Giants-Vikings game, which I'm crushed for Kirk, and people who listen to me know what a big Kirk fan I am. 
them, and I'm just crushed the, with the way that ended. The Ravens, Bengals game, the Cowboys. Who was the most impressive team to you over the weekend? Well, impressive probably San Francisco, um, just because they played well on both sides of the ball and they dominated the second half the way they did. Uh, their running game, um, the usage of their skilled guys, Debo and obviously McCaffrey and Kittle, uh, very impressive to me. Um, the comeback by Jacksonville, I mean, that, that that doesn't happen very often down 27 and nothing for them to stay with it. And Trevor Lawrence, as young as he is, to throw those horrible picks and to come back and uh, have the mental toughness to uh, make a run and get the victory. Um, on San Francisco, and I said this to Cooley on the on the podcast two days ago, I, I can't remember, and I'm not going to say that they're better than anything else in recent memory, but they're as good, in my opinion, as any team in recent memory when it comes to offensive weapons. I mean, McCaffrey, Kittle, Debo Samuel, who is just a dude that refuses to be tackled by one or two guys. You know, then you've got Ayuk, who's developing into a really good receiver. Then that offensive line. I mean, offensively, around Purdy, and I'll ask you about him in a moment, but can you think of any team in recent memory that's had that kind of weaponry around their quarterback? Not really. Not you know, at all the skilled positions. You know, you're talking about most teams will have a good back or maybe a good receiver, but they have every position filled. They have two excellent receivers. They got really three. Jennings plays pretty well too when he's his numbers called. He's a great blocker. Uh and then they have multiple backs that can hurt you and they got a great tight end. Um so and, and they have the best offensive tackle in pro football. So it that helps as well. Yeah, I mean it's amazing. By the way, Ray Ray McLeod, when he get when he got his opportunity when Samuel was out, he's a game breaker uh, as well. So, how do you see San Francisco with Brock Purdy right now? I mean, there's the thought that he's you know actually really good, and then there's the thought that well he's got the best weaponry around him, and he's got a phenomenal coaching staff and and a phenomenal offensive head coach. How do you describe the Brock Purdy thing right now in San Francisco? Francisco. Well, I think they are using them perfectly. They're not asking them to do too much. They're uh, getting the ball out of his hands uh, with a quick game and the bootlegs, which makes all quarterbacks comfortable. They're playing with a lead more often than not, which keeps him in phase of the game um, ahead of the chains. Uh, they're not asking them to drop back 50 times a game. Um, fortunately, they had been in the lead. Like I said, if they get down by two scores and they're forced to be one-dimensional, I think you'll see a different Brock Purdy. But when they're in front and they have second and five and second and three. This guy is very effective, as most quarterbacks can be, and they're utilizing the right way. Can anybody make them one-dimensional? Yeah, I mean, I think if they you know, turn the ball over and get behind early in a the game, then sure. I think Philadelphia can. Um, they can create turnovers. They can get after the quarterback a little bit. They can stop the run. So I think that's a, a, a chance for them to be able to do that. But easier said than done because their defense plays at a very high level as well. And it's, in order to get ahead by a couple touchdowns, you're going to have to score. And scoring against that defense has been no easy task for anybody. Taking uh, the surroundings out of the equation, do you see a, a legitimate quarterback in Brock Purdy or not? I think uh, jury's still out. I think he's won some games already. Has proven he belongs in the NFL as a quarterback. But to be a top-notch quarterback, I think he's got a ways to go. I think his accuracy is a little bit questionable. Um, but you know, like I said before the passes that he's asked to make some of them on the bootlegs and the quick game are pretty easy. The swing passes to McCaffrey where he runs for 35 yards. I mean, I think I could do some of those, but um, <laughs> he's a tough kid. He's, his mobility is, is a lot better than I thought it would be. Uh, so that he can escape pressure, which is critical nowadays in pro football. And um, 
and he's showing some mental toughness that you really don't know until you throw him out there and throw him into the fire on some of these third down conversions, some of these red zone conversions, some of these scrambles that he has. I think he's a mentally tough kid, and and I think it's going to be a, a possible quarterback of the future for the 49ers. What do you think? I, I want to come back to these games in a second, but a conversation I think that's already started that will really increase if San Francisco – goes on to make a Super Bowl or win a Super Bowl with a third-string quarterback. There are going to be a lot of teams that say, and there have been a lot of teams that have always said, you know, rookie contract quarterback, et cetera. But there are going to be teams that say, hey, if like Washington with Sam Howell, if we just build up everything around him, we don't need the quarterback. Look at San Francisco. I think that would be a pretty flawed um, approach because they've got a much better supporting staff than anybody else in the league, and by the way, have a hell of a coaching staff. But what do you think? Well, I think there's two ways to build your team. You build them around the quarterback, as long as that quarterback is a uh, game-changing type quarterback, like a Mahomes, Josh Allen. There's not many of them as a problem. Right. Uh, and the other way is to have a quarterback and build around him. Uh, the problem is most quarterbacks, if you play well and your team does well, the quarterbacks demand a heck of a lot of money because it's the position. Um, so if the 49ers do good the next three or four years, Purdy's going to get a hell of a contract, you know, despite being just pretty much an average quarterback. Like Jalen Hurts, but, although uh, Hurts is better. Yeah, yeah, yeah Hurts is better. But, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, we were at Cincinnati with Andy Dalton. We went to three straight years in the playoffs. We had a very good defense. We had A.J. Green, Marvin Jones, Giovanni Bernard, Tyler Eifert. We had a great team around him, Andrew Whitworth at tackle. Uh, and Andy's not one of the top five or ten quarterbacks in the league, but we were able to win a lot of games because we had a great supporting cast. Yeah. Um, on the 49ers, you didn't mention when I asked you about the most impressive performances of the weekend, you didn't men- mention Dallas or Dak. That's their next opponent. What kind of chance do you give Dallas against the 49ers on Sunday? Well, if Dallas is hot or cold, really. If they play the way they played against Tampa Bay, they have a hell of a chance. You know, If they play like they played against the, the Commanders, they got no chance at all. Uh, they have the ability to play well. Dak has shown that he is a streaky quarterback, and if he gets hot, they're going to be a tough out because defensively uh, they can get after the quarterback with Lawrence and obviously the pass rush that they have. So uh, it's a dangerous game. But if Dak turns into the, some of the Dak plays that he makes where he throws interceptions, they, they got no chance. But you always have to give a team with a guy like Dak Prescott who can run, like with C.D. Lamb, um, Schultz. Uh, they got some good players around them, and they have a, a, an ability to – take the ball away as well on defense. So it'll be a good game. Do you agree with me? And I didn't feel this way earlier, earlier in the season. I feel this way now. Like, why don't they just run Pollard a lot more than Zeke? I mean, he just looks like he's much more of a threat with the ball in his hands than Zeke ever looks. He does look more explosive. That's for sure. Zeke is more of a power back and he can get the tough yards. Uh, Pollard's more of an outside the tackle type guy, although Pollard's done some inside zones and some between the tackle runs has been effective as well. So, uh, you're right. I, I don't know. Um, I still think there's a place for the type of Zeke plays, more of a four-minute drill, short yardage type guy. If you want to run the clock and, and pound the team in a submission, I think Zeke's more your guy. But if you need more explosive plays to get the back out in space and work the linebackers in the passing game and uh, get them on the, on the edge, then uh, Pollard's your guy. It's just, uh, you know, whatever you like. Do you think Brady will play next year, and do you think he should play next year? You know what? I, I didn't think he'd play five years ago, to be honest with you. And he just keeps playing. I, I think, uh, you know, he, he's still rel- he's still obviously very healthy and very in shape, and has the arm strength and arm talent. I think he his accuracy is, is tapered off a little bit. Um, his arm strength tapered off just a little bit. But 
you know, he's a very competitive guy, and I think he probably, if he goes to the right situation, Miami or Vegas, or stays in Tampa Bay, then uh, he could still be effective if, if, again, if you have the weapons around him like Miami does and like Vegas does. If they keep Devontae and, and uh, Waller and uh, Renfro, um, that could be a good fit as well. I mean, I still think, do you disagree with this? I still think he's a top half of the league quarterback. Yeah, I think so. I think probably top 10 still, yeah, right? Yeah. Top 12 for sure. you gotta, you got to mention him. I mean, he's so smart and he gets the ball out of his hands. He knows where to go with the ball. He can protect himself uh, with the line calls, which is critical. The experience that he has and in, in, in knowing how to attack coverages and uh, uh, all that, he can still do all that stuff. It's just the mobility issue is is obviously an issue. Um, but, you know, if you have the people around him that get open quick, then he's your guy. But if you have to wait for play to develop and you don't have a very good offensive line, like Tampa struggled a lot this year with their uh, poor offensive line, then he won't be as effective. What did you think of the Miami-Buffalo game? What was your reaction to that game? Because there were a lot of different kind of reactions. You know, there was criticism of Mike McDaniel with the delay of game, um, and yet there was praise for him with a third-string quarterback nearly pulling it off at Buffalo in that sort of environment. What did you think? Well, I think Josh Allen almost gave – that he gave Miami a chance to compete there uh, with the turnovers in the first half then the one to start the third quarter. Uh, the scoop and score by the Dolphins. The Dolphins' defense did a great job of taking the ball away, keeping a minute. Obviously, the third-string quarterback uh, did a good job. Uh, unfortunately, had a lot of drops. But, you know, at the end of the game, the game management was probably inexcusable. Uh, the timeouts they used before the delay of game were uh, clock management issues. They couldn't get the plays in in time. And, and that, that has a lot to do sometimes with the rookie quarterback as well, spitting out the plays uh, after the coach calls them uh, from the headset. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, you got to give credit for Miami for getting there uh, with the quarterback issues that they had, but you also have to criticize them a little bit for the game management and the delayed games they took in critical times. What did you think of the Ravens with Tyler Huntley on Sunday night with a legitimate chance to beat the Bengals on the road as a big underdog? You know, again, you can do a lot with a good power running game and a great defense, and, and that's what the, the Ravens did. Um, they, they, they physically uh, beat up Cincinnati on both sides of the ball, in my opinion. Um, you know, when Cincinnati lost those linemen, it was going to be very hard for Cincinnati to score. If if they punch in that quarterback sneak, it would have been hard for Cincinnati to go down a time, even with Joe Burrow and the weapons that he has, because they weren't going to be able to protect. And that's going to be an issue for them moving forward. they got to get those linemen healthy if they can. But uh, I was impressed with Baltimore. That's just their style of play. They've been that way since I was in the in, in, in offensive coordinator Cincinnati in 2011. They right. play, They beat you up up front. They play great defense and at the end of the game. Um, they're going to be there because of that style that they play. You know, we'll get. I want to get to Lamar Jackson at some point um, in Washington too. But you know, you coached here. I've been here for a lifetime, and even though Baltimore and Washington are two very distinct cities, and the fans don't root for the other teams, um, I've always respected the Ravens. They're one of the few organizations in the league that literally have what people refer to as an identity. Like, what has been your thought? I mean, you coached against them, obviously, in the AFC North, and then you were 35 miles south as the head coach here for six years. What do you think of the Ravens as an organization? Well, I think it's obviously first class. They're always competitive. Um, they're always tough, physically tough. Um, they play a style of football that they, they actually scout for. I mean, they draft for their style of football. Uh, to be a Raven, you have to be this type of guy, and they go out and get those type of guys. And they, they, they swear by it, and, and it's been an effective style for them for many, many years. And 
and Coach Harbaugh's done a great job of uh, sticking with that identity, uh, although they haven't won the Super Bowl in a while. But uh, they're always in contention, and they play tough and they beat you up. All right. Uh, I saved the game that, that many of my listeners are waiting for me to hear uh, discuss with you, um, and that is the Vikings losing to the Giants. Um just give me your overall impressions of that game, and then I, I do want to ask you about Kirk's final throw of the game. But overall, what did you think of the game? Yeah, I, I think overall, I just uh, I come away with that game being just ultra impressed with Daniel Jones. Uh, Carry the ball seventeen times, rush for seventy five yards is uh, is impressive. He's come a long way with his passing game, uh, his accuracy, his anticipation. Uh, but then you throw the out element of him being able to run. Obviously, Saquon Barkley is a huge piece of that puzzle in, in New York. Uh, but I think the development he's had with uh, the first-year coach, Coach Dayball, has been very impressive. Um, that's what I come across. I don't really criticize the Vikings. I come away more impressed with the Giants and their uh, development with Daniel Jones. All right, so what did you think of the Cousins' overall game and then the final fourth and eight throw where he threw it to Hawkinson underneath well short of the sticks? Yeah, I saw the play on tape, and obviously they're trying to get Justin Jefferson. Um, but I think the uh, right defensive end was bearing down on Kirk, and Kirk had that clock in his head. He knew he couldn't take a sack. He had to get the ball out of his hands and get it to somebody. Uh, he didn't want to throw a pop fly up there. Um, uh, so he gave Hawkinson a chance to maybe catch it and break a tackle and get the first. It's really the only option he had when you watch the tape. He couldn't work backside to the second or third receiver because he had no time. It was more of a... He looked at Justin Jefferson. It was a man underneath him and a safety over the top of him. Uh, and, he, and he felt the pressure. He went right to Hawkinson. He didn't have time to reset his feet or scramble because the defensive end was bearing down on him. Man, you and Chris both, Cooley both, defending him in that play. I'm the biggest defender of Kirk Cousins, and I think he should have chucked it up for Jefferson. I think he should have just yeah, – I don't ch- think he could set his feet, man. As soon as he hit his back foot, um, he, he was about to get blindsided. And I think – for him to get the ball up with the uh, velocity, uh, he would have had to step into that throw, and I don't think he really had time. To be honest, that's just what it looked like on film. On the left tackle, got beat pretty bad. Um, do you think Kevin O'Connell saw the same thing? I, I don't know. I didn't hear what Kevin O'Connell saw. I just I just saw the play on tape and, and the play live. But you, but you, but you know Kevin, and you know what Kevin thinks of Kirk. So what do you think he came yeah. away from that thinking? think he had to come away the same thing right i mean they probably needed a chip uh the left help the left tackle out to give kirk some time to throw it to justin jefferson uh on that seven cut you know it's uh you know usually when we coach that route he has the, he has his option to set that thing high or if this, he can break it across the corner's face but he was clearly undercut by the corner so he had to set it high kirk was waiting for him and getting ready to launch it but then he felt the pressure and then went right back down to hawkins and he couldn't set his feet so Obviously, he wanted Jefferson. Jefferson. If Jefferson Justin was doubled and playing man underneath like that, he would have done a reset and try to get to the backside basic, but he couldn't get there. He just couldn't get there because the time didn't allow it. Was that a choice route for Hawkinson? And if so, should he have broke? Should he have gone inside? No, typically it's a it's a planned uh, out route, uh, about a five yard out route. Because if you get in cover two, which a lot of people play in that third and eight, fourth and eight situation, you're trying to hold the corner and trying to get Justin Jefferson behind the corner. Unfortunately, they locked uh, Justin Jefferson with the corner and matched up on Hawkinson, so it was like a two-manish type thing. So uh, just it didn't didn't work out. And ideally in that situation, if you can't get it to Jefferson, you want to reset your feet and go back to the backside uh, in breaking routes. But he couldn't get there. 
What do you think of him moving forward in Minnesota? If they fix their defense, can they win in the postseason with him? I think so, yeah. They won 13 games, right? I mean, that's a lot of games. I don't care if they won by one point or 20 points to win that many games in the National Football League and, and clinch your division by week 11. Uh, it's impressive. I think it proves to me that Kirk is an effective quarterback and they have a very good team. Sure, when you get knocked out in the first round of the playoffs, it's 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 you know disappointing. But uh, you also have to look at the bright side. I mean, we won 13 games this year now. I mean, we fix our defense, tweak or get some more people in here to help personnel-wise on defense and uh, continue to help the offensive line out. Uh, then sure, they have a chance to go far in the playoffs. I think he's the. I think Minnesota became the first team with the worst defense in the NFL statistically to go better than 500 in like 20 years or something like that. Um, and they not only went better. Yeah, than Yeah, I mean, that says a lot about your offense and your and your quarterback, right? I mean, your quarterback has to play well if your defense is that terrible. Yeah, <laughs> and, it, and it was bad. All right, real quickly on this upcoming weekend, um, let's start Jags Chiefs. Do you give the Jags any shot at Arrowhead? I think Jags are coming in with a lot of confidence. They played well the second half of the season, and, and a lot has to be said about that because if you get hot at the right time, uh, come playoff time, then you are a dangerous football team. And I think the Jags are dangerous. I think they just have a carefree mentality. Coach Peterson's done a good job of instilling confidence in that team, and they've uh, proven them right by winning a lot of games here late. So, yes, I give them a great opportunity to win. Uh, Patrick Mahomes can. Uh, if there is a negative about Patrick, is he will turn the ball over from time to time and throw it into coverage. Uh, be loose with the ball in the pocket. So if they can create some turnovers early uh, and put it on them, and, and uh, then yes, I, I give them a chance. You know what, Jay? I think the underrated part of the comeback was Jacksonville's defense in the second half. I mean, people were complaining about Brandon yeah. Staley and the play calling. They they threw it 23 times, ran it seven times in the second half. But, you know, I've heard you say this w- with respect to run-pass ratio. If you're, if you're going minus one on first and ten or minus two, which Eckler was getting nailed at the line of scrimmage or behind it on all of the runs, it's hard to, to line it up and run it again on second and 12, second and 13. Um, but with a 20-point lead, should, should Staley have run the ball more in the second half and at least burnt, you know, 40-40-40 and then punted at least the, rather than, you know, throwing a couple of incompletions and stopping the clock? How would you have played that? Well, I think you still have to play uh, aggressive style of football. Jacksonville plays a, a front. They, they play a jam front and they try to cover up all the gaps and they're aggressive against the run. It's not easy to run against. You're, you're relegated to basically – uh, some outside zone type things away from rotation and all that stuff. And those are, those are hard to get positive yards and Jacksonville takes that away. So they're, you know, forcing you to throw the ball and you should be able to throw the ball and get some uh, completions with Justin Herbert and uh, Keenan Allen and, and Austin Eckler out of the backfield. Uh, you should be able to throw the ball in those critical situations. And most great teams are able to, if they're trying to load up and stop the run, uh, the only option you have a lot of times is to throw the ball and, Unfortunately, it didn't work out for them. All right, the Giants, uh, I guess, are on a bit of a roll here. They beat Minnesota. I mean, a lot of people thought they would pull that off. Um, they beat Washington twice to basically get them into the, into the postseason. They beat Indianapolis, which was the game that clinched the postseason berth. Eagles have been sitting there. If Hurts is 100%, and we don't know that for sure, do you give the Giants a chance of winning at Philadelphia Saturday night? Uh, yeah, small chance for sure, uh, especially the way Daniel has been playing. Um, I think um, – he can keep drives going. He can keep that offense on the field with his legs. And if they can get those 8 to 10 to 12 play drives that eat up some clock and, and force Jalen Hurts on the sideline watching the game on the bench, then yes, I give him a chance. Now, if they're relegated to a lot of three and outs, then they have no chance because Philadelphia's offense is 
is too good, in my opinion. They're going to get their points for sure. Uh, but the best way to stop them is to keep them on the bench, and that's the way the Giants have to approach the game. They got to get Saquon involved. Uh, they got to get Daniel involved in the design quarterback runs again, and they got to keep the clock moving and keep Hurts on the bench. Shorten the game um, and uh, yep. and keep them on the bench. Um, yeah, they're, they're too. <clears throat> the Phillies too good on offense. I mean, they really are. They're they're weapons. Uh, you talk about other teams' weapons, but they have two best, two great receivers and great tight end, and obviously backs can hurt you out of the backfield. And Jalen's ability to run is is sick. Yeah. Uh, I look at the Bengals after they were physically beaten up in that game, both sides of the ball, as you as you mentioned, going into Buffalo. I actually think it's a bad spot for them. What do you think? I do too. I really do. You know, it's I go back to 2000. I think it was 2013, my last year at Cincinnati, and we had the uh, we had the home playoff game clinched. We clinched our division in the last game of the year. We had a chance to get the number one seed, but we had to play Baltimore coming off the defending champion. Uh, they won the Super Bowl, and they had to win to get in, and we still played everybody, and we beat them that last game. We came out of that game after playing Baltimore. We were just beat up, and then we had a short week. Was that the Chargers loss? And we lost to San Diego. Yeah. We lost like three of our starters on offense in that Baltimore game. Baltimore can beat you up, and and they beat up Cincinnati, and I'm concerned about the offensive line for Cincinnati. Um, but Burrow, I would never bet against Burrow. He's just so good. He's so tough. He's got so much uh, his ability to run and move and, and make big plays and compete and get his team uh, up is, is, is secondary to none. But I still think Buffalo has, has got too much for him right now. How uh, you've already mentioned Dallas and San Francisco, right? Your pick is the 49ers. I mean, you, you think Dallas's inconsistency is their issue there? Nothing about yeah, Sunday for nights. Sure. Yeah. But but you'd pick yeah. you'd pick and so Buffalo and San Francisco in the games on Sunday. Um, what do you make of the Lamar Jackson situation in Baltimore? I, you know what it's it's hard to understand as much as he's done for that organization and their record with Lamar and their record without Lamar. I, I would think that Baltimore would be running to make sure they take care of him. Um, he's a he's a different type of quarterback. I understand that and. And sometimes when you have a type of quarterback like that, you're like, what would life be like if we had this guy or this guy? Well, you don't have that guy or that guy. You have Lamar. So I think his style of play, although he's got hurt in the last two years, um, is still effective. And he's been a great quarterback for that organization. And I'd be surprised if they let him go. But um, who knows? Um, you know, Lamar re- represents himself. There can be some, I guess, some animosity between the parties. And, and I think that's what's happened. You know, the the one thing, Jay, I, th- I think that the Baltimore situation, first of all, I personally, and I think I said this yesterday on the show, I think John Harbaugh could have really taken some of the heat off Lamar over the last couple of weeks by just coming out and saying, he's hurt, we wish he could play, he's nowhere near 100%, and we're going to go with Tyler Huntley or Anthony Brown, rather than leaving it out there with the narrative that developed that he had si- kind of quit on his team. So I- I'm critical of John Harbaugh for that, but from, from a Ravens' perspective, you know, they haven't done anything in the postseason with Lamar. I mean, he's one and two as a playoff quarterback. They didn't make the postseason last year because he was unavailable because he was injured. They, they're they out in the first round this year because he was unavailable because he was injured. I do understand the perspective of 
we can't pay you $200 million guaranteed in 45 to $50 million a year. You're not Mahomes. You're not Josh Allen. You're not Russell Wilson. I mean, he is now, maybe. Aaron Rodgers. It's a, it, it's a, it would be a really tough commitment, I think, for the Ravens to make, given that he's not always available. And the style of play, we haven't seen a dual run first team with the quarterback being the big part of the run game advance in the postseason. Yeah, I mean, there's truth to that. There's a lot of that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, However, Kaepernick did. Kaepernick got what, to the Super Bowl, you know, in that style of play. But he he's the one example. Yeah, yeah and they lost. But the, you know, I think um, you have to look at your options. You know, if we don't pay Lamar and we let him go, we trade him or whatever, well, then what are we going to go with? Clearly, they can't go with Huntley or Anthony Brown, right? I mean, what's their plan B? And, and a lot of teams always think the grass is greener. Uh, with plan B until they get plan B and they say, holy crap, I wish we would have kept Lamar. <laughs> so yeah. if they have a clear cut plan for that plan B, then sure, I can understand it. Uh, not wanting to pay him that much with the injuries that he's had and, and the style of play that he, for him to be effective, he's got to play with the reckless abandon with the ball, running the ball uh, uh, for him to be effective. Otherwise he's not a drop back. He can't just turn him into a drop back passer. You know, we have figured out that that doesn't work with some of these athletic quarterbacks that rely on their legs. So, um, Plan B is very important for them if they want to choose to go a different direction. All right, I want to finish up with the Washington stuff, but before I get to that real quickly, because I know you're a Derek Carr fan, where do you think he'll end up? You know, I don't know. Uh, that's a great question. I think there's going to be a lot of teams that are after him. I think the Jets would be a great uh, spot for him. I think Atlanta, uh, I think Washington would be a good spot for him. There's a lot of teams out there that could use the services of Derek Carr now. The only negative is, is he doesn't move very well. Uh, you better have a good offensive line. Um, uh, that he can come into because if you don't have a veteran offensive line or offensive line that can pass protect, then um, I wouldn't go after him. But if you have some good offensive linemen that can pass protect, then yeah, I'd take him in a minute. All right, um, let's come back after the break and talk about Washington. They've got a lot of decisions to make on offensive coordinator, quarterback, etc. We'll do that with Jay Gruden right after these words from a few of our sponsors. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, J.J. Redick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? You won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you were a consultant to Washington right now and you could not advocate for yourself to be the offensive coordinator, what would you be looking for? And give me a couple of names of people that impress you. Ah, uh, shoot, I don't know. Uh, really, I, I've been out of it here another year's years. You have to go after – you want to go after an experienced guy who's done it before? Do you want to go after a young, upcoming guy who's never done it before? Well, what would, what, what would you be looking for? What would you be looking for with this team? They're well, good I'm on defense. They've got. I, I, I'm an offensive coach, so I, I'm in all offensive meetings. I'm helping install the plays and call the plays. So it's not, you know, if I'm looking for a guy like that, if I'm Coach Rivera and I don't have any input on the offense, then I'd probably go after a veteran type guy who can uh, run a room and and try to surround him with a great staff. And obviously, uh, uh, so the guys are interviewing Coach Shermer. Um, is has got the experience. He's got some opportunities. He's failed with some of them. He's done great with some of them. Um, same thing with. Uh, the kid from Seattle, you know, he's done a great job, went through the Super Bowl, but Bevel. he's also had his issues. Bevel, yeah. So uh, there's no going to be, there's not going to be any perfect people in Washington are going to be like, oh, we're hiring this guy. He was terrible there, you know what I mean? Or you hire a young guy who's never done it and they'll be critical of that. So <laughs> he's not going to be right with the choice. You know, it's just a matter of the guy coming in and, and really uh, helping Sam Howell be effective and trying to get him the right pieces and uh, helping him out in that regard. But, you know, it's a tough call. All right. Well, you just mentioned Sam Howell, and there was a report over the weekend that they've been telling prospective offensive coordinators that Sam Howell is the quarterback they want to to enter 2023 as a starter. I mean, if you're getting pitched to be the OC, do you want them picking the quarterback, or isn't that something that you want some input on? Well, you want some input, but you also want to have some clarity. Is like, okay, this is our guy we're going to try to move forward with. I understand that. That's important to know so you can cater to his strengths, both in the draft process and obviously in OTAs and trying to get him ready uh, to be your guy. I mean, you want to be able to, obviously, when you're installing the offense, you have a plan in mind and you have a player in mind you're installing it too to try to help out. Um, but you're also going to have to have somebody come in and compete, I would think. You know, whether it's a veteran guy, whether you keep Heineke or uh, you go out and get a Jacoby Brissett or somebody like that who's going to be on the streets. You want a guy that help push him a little bit and compete. And if he does fail early in the season, you have a guy that you can go to that can help you. You know, I was thinking if it is Pat Shermer, he coached Case Keenum in Minnesota the year they made it to the NFC title game with that Minneapolis miracle throw against the Saints. Would Keenum be a guy that you would would bring back? You know, he's familiar with Shermer. He's familiar with the system. And you go in with a guy like Hal and Keenum. I actually threw out this morning and yesterday Brissett as well. But I threw out Andy Dalton as well. I think Dalton would be a great guy to have on this team. I thought he played very well this year. The Saints may want to re-sign him. Um, I don't. I don't know what they're going to do. But what do you think about Keenum? What do you think about Dalton for this team? 
I like all three of the guys you mentioned. First of all, they're great people, and they're very smart, and they're going to be ready to go if you go with the young quarterback, and they're going to be very supportive of that quarterback. So uh, they're not going to create any uh, controversy with uh, I should be playing or go on Twitter and say, what the heck am I doing? On the, you know what I mean? They're, they're going to be very supportive. They're team-oriented guys, and when they're asked to play, they can be effective. Uh, I think Case Keenum is very similar to Heineke in his style of play. You know, he's a tough kid. He's uh, he's going to get the tough yards for you. He's going to make some throws. You be like, what the hell did he just do? But at the end of the day, he's going to be prepared and he's going to compete his tail off. Um, and obviously, Andy Dalton is very smart. You can throw anything at him you want to. He's uh, still very accurate and has great anticipation. And he can still move a little bit. He can uh, effectively use his legs. So I think they both be great options. So what do you think of Sam Howell? I only have one day of or one game uh, that I've seen him, and I think he's got obviously the tools uh, you need nowadays to be an effective quarterback with the arm talent that he has. He threw a couple deep balls that were good, but I like the fact that he's very athletic, and I think you know if you're not going to be that up to speed as far as the passing game goes and the concepts and how to attack coverages and all that stuff, you better be able to run, and he can do that, and, and he can get some first downs with his legs, which is critical nowadays in pro football. you got to be able to have an athletic quarterback that can get the tough yards for you on third and eight and third and nine and get some, convert some first downs that way for you. Uh, because it's very hard to call the perfect play all the time for a true drop-back quarterback. It's hard to protect them. Um, it's just very, very difficult. That's a very experienced guy with a lot of knowledge and, and, and great accuracy and anticipation. Taking uh, two more for you. Taking the whole ownership situation out of this conversation. You know, in 2019, you know, I sat here and talked about your predicament. You appeared to be entering a season in which you had to win. And yet, the owner came in and drafted Dwayne Haskins. And then you had the issue of having Haskins but needing to win. In Ron Rivera's case, I think he, if we take the ownership situation, I mean, he's, he's probably a lame duck going into next season, ownership situation or not. You know, if you didn't have one, he's got to win next year. By the way, he's got a decent team. They've got an excellent defense. They've got a bunch of playmakers. If he goes with Sam Howell versus chasing a veteran again that can come in and perhaps, you know, give them, Carson Wentz obviously didn't, and you knew that um, when we talked last summer. Um, but that's that. I mean, it's a developmental year if you go with Sam Howell, just like it would have been a total developmental year if you had gone with Dwayne Haskins. I mean, that's a that's a t- that's a yeah. That's a, I think they're yeah, go different ahead. type of guys. I think I think uh, Sam's got a year under his belt now, which is very important. Um, but you're seeing guys like Brock Purdy do it. You're seeing some young guys that are pretty effective doing it. I know it's a long shot, but. If you play great defense, you can run the ball a little bit, and your quarterback can move around a little bit. You have some weapons outside like Washington does, and then they should be competitive. I don't think you call it a rebuilding year or a, a you know, it's going to take time here. You don't have time in the NFL. You know, you have to win now. And I think if you're going to go with Sam Howell, then you've seen enough of him in practice that he can make all the throws. You know he's athletic. You know he's a great leader. You know he's smart. Uh, you've made that commitment to him. Then, then you should be able to win with him. Has Washington reached out to you? <laughs> You're well, the only guy that's reached out to me. Nobody's reached out to me. I mean, but do, do you do you want to coach still or not? Or have has that passed? I would like to coach again if it's the right situation. You know, I've just been in a couple situations that aren't fun. You know, you, it's not fun working 16, 17 hours a day, and uh, and not everybody's on board with you. You know, you got too many you know too many people stabbing you in the back in, in this room, and then you walk over here and he's shaking his head at you when you walk out. He's on the phone with the door shut. You know, that's not fun. But if you're working with a staff that you really know and trust and 
uh, get along with. Whether you win or not, it's still fun to coach. I still like coaching players. That's that's what you lose sight of sometimes when you lose some games and the miserable uh, outlook you get from uh, behind the scenes. Still, when you go out on the field and you coach the players, that's still fun for me. It wasn't – well, I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going to ask the question. Was it always, you know, walking out of one room, going into another one, door shuts? Was it always that way, or was it that way just at the end? At the end, yeah, at the end. You know, when you're winning uh, or you're competitive and you're doing pretty good, you know, everybody's happy and, you know, patting you on the back. But when you, adversity strikes, you can see the true character of a lot of people. And that's uh, that's why you have to sign and you have to get people that you know and can trust because when adversity strikes – you want them to have your back and still be on board with the process. And that's not always the case in the NFL. Sometimes it's harder to deal with coaches and staff members than it is the players. The players just go out there and play. A lot of them play their ass off. You'll have an occasional player on Twitter say some stupid things. But for the most part, the players play. They just want to be coached. Uh, it's the coaches and the front staff and the scouts and all those people that you got to deal with that become a miserable situation at times. Last question. There's so many of them, you know. Last question, I promise this time, because I just thought of something. Are any of these people that are being interviewed, and you don't have to name them, are, do any of them reach out to you to find out what Washington was like for you? Have you been, or even in the past? Oh, you know? no, 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 it's never happened. You know, I, I, you know, I think uh, if you're looking for a coach to hire, uh, you'll reach out to people that have worked with that guy and find out what type of guy he is and all that stuff if you don't know him, if, if you don't have never worked with him. Right. Um, but you don't really... I've never, like, I've never, if I interviewed for a job, I've never called other people, hey, what's it like working here? You know, you're trying to get a job. If you feel like it's a good fit for you and you need a job, you're going to take the job. <laughs> you still right. try to make the most of it when you get there. All right. Uh, thank you. Hope you're well and uh, good luck in your match today. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, I enjoy having Jay on this show. He is insightful. Uh, he is paying attention to the team locally because he still lives here locally. Not during the cold weather months. I think he's down in Florida uh, for much of the winter. But uh, it's good to have him on the show once again. Uh, tomorrow, Tommy will be with me. Friday, Cooley will be on, scheduled to be on, uh, to preview the four divisional round games. We will also, on Friday... Look back to 40 years ago this coming weekend when Washington played Dallas in the NFC Championship game at RFK Stadium. Still, for me, the single most significant game and win in franchise history. And number two, the most electric, raucous environment I have ever witnessed in person at a sporting event. Uh, We'll do some of that on Friday. Uh, Have a great rest of the day. Back tomorrow.